That song for me expresses a number of things. One of them, some level of relational dissatisfaction, longing, but also kind of an interesting view, which is love's the greatest thing. I'm waiting for it to happen. Waiting won't make it happen. There is a part of us, I think, that thinks that sort of if we hang around people, if we hope and if we wish, then love will happen. Deep, meaningful connections will happen, and, and they won't. The uh, series expiration date that we're in is exploring things of urgency that we tend not to treat as urgent, things that require action, and we often don't act on them. And one of those is community. Community is a matter of urgency. It's a matter where there's an expiration date that without action, it fails. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is define community, because community is a buzzword, really. It means almost anything in current society. But in the broadest sense, all community is is a sociological subset. In other words, you've got a big society, and then you have the medical community, the graphics arts community, the Islamic community, the gay community. I mean, you can use anything. It's just a different subset where people have something in common. When I talk about community today, that is not what I mean. That is the bare minimum of community. When I talk about community, what I mean is more how the, the Latin derivation of it is, which is the quality of connection. Community is deeply sharing things in common. It's the quality of connection between people and between people and God. And the simple truth is, community doesn't happen by accident. In fact, deep, meaningful connections are fragile. It's easier to break community than it is to build it. I mean, just think about it. it we walk through life and things break up all the time. Bands fail, much to our regret at times. Denominations split. Churches cease to exist. Marriages fall apart. To marriage, family, they're just other forms of community. Places where there's supposed to be a quality connection. I want to read to you a portion of an article from um, the Wall Street Journal. It's called The Divorce Generation. And it is a sobering article. I'll read just one part of it. The, the thesis of the article, The Divorce Generation, the Wall Street Journal, is about many in your demographic that whose parents, where the divorce rate was very high, you went through divorce and splits and living in different homes and things like that and made a determination that this would not happen in this generation. And yet, it still does. The woman writes, but then one evening I found myself where I vowed I'd never be. Miserable, in tears, telling my husband that we were like siblings who couldn't stand each other rather than a couple, and listening as my husband said he felt as though we had never really been a couple, and regretted that we hadn't split up a decade earlier. I'm done, he said. It was as if a cosmic force had been unleashed. The awful finality of it roared in like an enormous black cloud blotting out the sky over every inch of the world. It was done. That was four years ago. Even now, I still wonder every day if there was something that I, we, could have done differently. 
Like many of my cohort, the circumstance of my upbringing led me to believe that I made exactly the right choices by doing everything differently from my parents. Why is community a matter of urgency? Because when it breaks down, the pain is significant. We're made for a connection, a quality of connection that is not incidental, that's deep and meaningful. And when that does not happen, we feel dissatisfied. And when it falls apart, we feel broken. And community is fragile. It's easier to break it down than it is to build it. And so today what I want to put before you that as easy as it is for community to be broken down, it indeed is not supposed to, and there are ways to live that can build deep, meaningful connection that weighing all other things is really what our heart and soul longs for and gravitates for. But the way we're going to look at it today is we're going to explore a book in the Bible that chronicles the breakdown of community and then gives a counterintuitive, deeply revolutionary thought about how to see life and our actions and even our ethical choices differently. The book we're going to look at is called 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a church in Asia Minor. And as we've talked about many of the, the letters in the New Testament, what they are, they are letters written back to churches, gatherings of people that had been founded, and they were addressing specific issues. What the letter of 1 Corinthians is addressing is a community in chaos, absolute chaos, where action after action was breaking down the community. And worse, as those actions were breaking down the community, they were formulating little catchphrases that were truish, that allowed them to justify and continue their behavior. And what happens in uh, this letter that Paul writes back to the Corinthian church is he both walks through some of their actions and says, really, at, at times, are you serious? But then he also addresses directly some of their ways of speaking about that. And so there are times, there are phrases that are used in 1 Corinthians that you sort of cock your head like, mm, really? And what Paul's doing, he's quoting them directly and then responding. And what I want to do for a couple minutes, we're gonna, I'm going to walk through a couple of things that were happening and then this really critical passage in chapter 10 where Paul quotes them and flips what they said. So, in the first chapter, here's one of the things that, that's going on. And this is the place where I think, really, Paul is beating his head against the wall, thinking, seriously, is this what we're doing? Is this what we have fallen to? And what you have is you have a group of people that were arguing about what person had led them, had taught them about Christianity. And he, Paul says this. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. It was another, you know, guy there. Another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. And you realize that was like pulling out the big gun. People saying, look, I follow Paul's teaching his grace. So, oh, really? I follow Jesus. You know, it's, it's sort of intended to trump everybody else. But what Paul says is, are you kidding me? You're actually arguing with each other about who it was that taught you. And you're doing that, why again? What, what, is, this, what is this producing? besides ego and pride, that your way, your approach, your spirituality, your practices are best? Really, who is this helping? But let me move on. And then in, in chapter 5, 
He deals with the situation and, and realize that in Corinth, there was all sorts of stuff going on. I mean, really all sorts of stuff. And the pagan church lived in such a way that r- really almost anything was legitimate. I mean, they had temple prostitution. It was like anything is legitimate. You can do almost anything. And what Paul says in this passage is, look, y'all are doing something that the pagans are embarrassed about. And this is what it says. One of you even has his father's wife. Now, um, when I say that, isn't there something that sort of goes up on the hair up in the back of your neck like, ooh? And this is what he says, and you're proud. And you're happy about it. Oh my goodness, what are they saying? How did they become proud of that? Hey, we're a community that embraces anything. Anything goes. No boundaries, no legalism, no judgment. Series after series of incidents Paul weighs in on and challenges them. But then in chapter 10, he brings it all to a head with two verses. And one of them, he says this. He quotes them directly. You say anything is permissible. And where do they get that? Well, I think Paul, it's, it's sort of true. You can do it. And I think what they said is, Paul, everything's permissible. You know why? Jesus, Jesus died for us. He forgave us. We live by grace, so you can do anything you want. Everything's permissible. We're not one of those harsh, judgmental churches. We're one of those places where it's free. Everything is permissible. No boundaries, no rules, just love. And what Paul says is, okay, everything is permissible. Let's say I buy your argument. Not everything's beneficial. You're asking the wrong question. You're functioning on the lowest possible ethic. (laughs) Yeah, everything is permissible, but is it beneficial? What does it do? How does it promote life and community? Okay, let me back up for a minute. So you'd say, all right, let me get your point here. What you're saying is that community has an expiration date. If you don't, you know, act a certain way, it's going to fall apart, and look at how it falls apart places, but really, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? For example, you're in a church. This is a church. You're in a church. Let's say community disintegrates here. You have, at the current count, 700 other churches in Charlotte you can go to. You have a smorgasbord of other churches that you can go to. Quite honestly, you could see the disintegration of community in 500 places, and still you got 200 more to go. So what's the big deal? We're a disposable society. Church doesn't work. I go to another one. Job doesn't work. I go to another one. Friendships don't work. I go to another one. Marriage doesn't work. I go to another one. Children don't work. It's the only one you really can't do that with. Up until then, you go to another one. Can't imagine the conversation where you've been a great kid, really. I love you. Don't get me wrong. But did you see them? But isn't that weird? We do that with everything else. No, really, it's not you. It's me. You've been great, but going over here. I mean, so what? Just move on. You got another one. Lots of choices, lots of opportunities. Break community here, build it over there. 
this is what's wrong with that. This is where the dissatisfaction, the deep dissatisfaction comes from. It's not how you were made. You were made in the image of a God who exists as three persons in one God. Now, if you try to figure this out mathematically, your brain will hurt. There's, there's a part of this that I used to think about the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And I used to look at that and go, oh my goodness, that's just confusing. And more and more of I thought about it, there is, a, there is a mystery and a beauty to this that's absolutely compelling. God is one and yet he's three. He lives eternally in relationship with himself. There is a connection that is intrinsic. God is inherently relational. He doesn't choose to be relational. He is in his very being a relational being that does not splinter. And we who are made in his image are intrinsically relational, meant for deep connection that does not splinter. And every time it splinters, something aches within us with a gnawing sense that this is not how it ought to be. There's a point in Jesus' life where some people are saying to him, hey, Jesus, you're a little bit too into this whole relational thing. And, you know, Moses, remember Moses? Moses said, hey, you know, if your wife burns the toast, you can all go off and get another wife. And that was a bit of an extreme, but honestly, not much. And Jesus said, Moses allowed this to be so, but it was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. You were meant for connection that doesn't break. Quality of engagement with God and with others that doesn't get broken. And when it does, something splinters within. You see, the core of the gospel is this simple concept that God pursued you. Really, the Bible is the story of God pursuing people in order to bring a connection back to them. If you, if you don't en- get anything else today, if you're new and you're exploring what Christianity is about, Christianity is about God pursuing you to connect you to him, sending his son to die for you, to forgive you, to give you a relationship with him that you absolutely cannot lose so that you would be connected with God now and forever. See, at, at the core of The postmodern existential dilemma is this sense, this gnawing sense, this pervasive cultural notion, are we actually alone in the world? Do we exist? Do we pretend to be connected? But in the end, we are, as Martin Heidegger said, this being alone and disconnected. And all of our connections are ethereal. They are fleeting. And in the end, we stand alone. We live or die by ourselves. It's not true. The heart of Christianity is intending to impress that point upon us. It is not true. That God has made us for himself. And when we enter a relationship with Jesus, we are connected with him forever. Not to be broken. Not to be splintered. And then Jesus, at one point in his life, he summarizes the whole Bible. What is it? What's the whole thing about? This whole story. Love God and love others. Live in connection with God and live in connection with others and you will have lived well and beautifully. 
That's why community matters. Community, the quality of life, living with one another, that's why it matters. That's why whenever it expires, something is wrong with how we were created to be. And so what Paul calls this group of people, and through them, us, is to begin to see our actions differently, to ask better questions about how we live our life so that in the end, what happens is I love God and experience love with him, and I love others and experience love with him. Let me explain. There are multiple ways based upon this passage that Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. There are multiple ways to look at ethics, right and wrong in our life. And I was talking with a friend earlier this week, and they said when you have little children, they begin to consider their actions with the word can. Can I do this? And by can, what they mean is do I have the physical capacity to do this? Can I walk up the stairs. There's no real deep ethical moral choice. It's all about motor skills. Can I do this? It moves one level farther when it's, can I do this? I have the motor skills, but will I be able to get away with this? Stop me if you're still at that level. Isn't there a part of us that's still looking at the ethical is, can I get away with this? Can I, it's permissible, right? Can I do this? We move up one other level of ethical engagement when we say, okay, it's a bigger than do I have the motor skills and if I can get away with it, but does it break any known technical law of ethics? Can you convict me if I do or don't do this that I'm ethically wrong? For example, can you argue about your spiritual practices and who it was that led you? Can you say, I follow... Bruce, and I follow so-and-so. Sure. I, you know, I can't pick, pick out the exact ethical, technical flaw of that. Sure, okay, you can do that. You can, you are permitted to argue whether or not your approach, the person you follow, is better than mine, which is what the Corinthians do in chapter one. They're arguing about who, who they're following. His, oh, his approach is way better. the highest ethic, the one that builds life, the one that affirms the soul, the one that makes us alive is the one that asks a better question. How will my action build community with other people? Not can I get away with it, not is it technically okay, but what will the ramifications be in terms of my relationship with God and other people. What are the consequences? I want deep connections. If I want deep connections, will this action promote it or cause it to disintegrate? The guy uh, sleeps with his father's wife. Really, don't you wonder sometimes the Bible, it, it's, really, it's really somewhere between R and X-rated at times. The guy sleeps with his father's wife. I think he's asking the wrong question. And see, what we would do with that is, well, you ought not do that. You know, that's an ethical foul. Paul's actually saying something different. Look what this does to the fabric of connection with which we were made. Um, I have not seen this movie that I'm about to tell you about. I uh, have been given a synopsis of it. I am not recommending every part of it. 
Whenever I speak about a movie, I am not saying every scene is personally approved by me. Crazy Stupid Love with Steve Carell. And it's about promiscuity and lots of it. Interesting concept embedded in it. Ryan Gosling has as his sort of his life plan to um, have brief, you fill in the blank of what that means, brief relationships with women over and over again. And he's very successful at it. And he even teaches Steve Carell how to have brief relationships with women. Here is the classic, relatively superficial Christian way to approach that. Ryan Gosling is wrong. You should not sleep with someone before you're married. That's wrong. That's ethically wrong. Ryan, stop. It's true, I mean. But why? You see, none of the ethical parameters that Jesus gives us in, in, in the Scripture, none of them are like, just don't do this. Why? Seriously, why is that wrong? So some of you have done that. Really. Some of you have yielded your life thinking, yeah, I'll go into this relationship a little bit, that relationship for a little bit. It's just physical. What's the big deal? Why does the Bible speak against that? What's the deeper ethic? The deeper ethic is real connection with people and not breaking down the fabric of connection. And, and some of you know all too well what that life did to break the fabric of connection. You noticed how something in you died over and over again. You saw how it promoted nothing in terms of connection with someone else. You saw how it promoted nothing in terms of you gaining a depth of connection with God. Why is that wrong? Not because it's written down in a rule book, but because the core of our life is love God and love other, and that's where meaningful satisfaction is, and that will never do it. And so that's why God is almost pleased with us. Don't, don't just not do this. Understand. There is a deeper, more profound ethic. You were made for God, and you were made for one another, and live in such a way that you build connection into others around you. You can see everybody in that movie wants the same thing. They want a deep connection. They just don't have a clue how to do it. And then I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end because then it's the whole plot spoiler, and so we're just moving on now. Now, here's the, here's the thing. If you want to have connection with people, it is really inconvenient. It's really very inconvenient to develop deep connection with God and, and with other people. It requires not simply intentional effort, but it requires a different way of viewing our life that forms all of our actions. I want you to think, just one, 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 one brief illustration. We have on the other side of that wall every Sunday over 100 children. And we have over 100 children there, and our goal is not to keep them out of your hair for an hour or so. And you're thinking, yeah, it, is. it may not be your goal, it's mine. <laughs> it's not our goal. It's a, it's a lovely side benefit. <laughs> it's not our goal. Our goal is not also, this is very important, our goal is not also to teach them some things out of a book that they can memorize. We have a very distinct philosophy of Kids Warehouse, which is we want teachers to weigh in with their life into children's life and to walk alongside of them. So that when they're 20 and 25, and 40, and 50, they have a different wiring than we might have had. 
they learn some things early on. That love and connection is their priority. Information and content is not. It's a different way of looking at life. I think it's easy to look at our relationships and some of you may feel very satisfied. That's great. Don't go content. Relationships are fragile. But you may feel very satisfied. That's, that's awesome. Others, you may feel very dissatisfied. In, in a room this size, people are all over the map. And, and I know that. But the way to build continuity in your relationship with God and with others is to keep at the forefront, this is fragile and will expire unless I live in such a way to build connection. And there are many ways to do that, practically speaking. There are many ways to alter the wiring that we may have of first considering, can I get away with it? Is it technically wrong? Two, how do I live to build connection with God and with others? This is one way to do it. I'm very careful when I tell you something that I do because I don't want you to go, oh, wow, that's it. There we go. Okay, that's how we do it. This is how I try to keep on task with changing the wiring and doing that. I like to write. It helps me to connect with God to write. It, it may not help you. It helps me. It, 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 it somehow, for me, and it may be the, the how I tend to be scattered, it helps me to focus in my connection with God. And so some years ago, I heard a guy say, talk about how he used his writing to avoid the tyranny of an unexamined life. And it struck a deep chord within me that if I can live my life where I ask better questions, and for me, if I write those better questions down, God, how can I live today? Show me how to live today so that I build community with you, with my wife and kids, with my friends, with those I come into connection with. Show me how to build community. And then at the end of the day or end of a week, stop and go, well, God, how did I do? Show me where I'm not living that way because I want to be rewired. I want to live in a way that's deeply satisfying. I want to live in the way for which I was made, and that's what I want for you. I want you to not walk out of here every Sunday with a new thought about some particular action to have. I want you to walk out of here knowing a couple of things. You are desperately loved and pursued by God. He has made you for a connection with him, and he promises to never leave you and to never forsake you. And he calls you to a deeply satisfying engagement with him and others and it happens as we engage that. As we begin to view our lives in a different way and forge, our, forge ahead believing this will expire. My connection with others is fragile unless I weigh into it with heart, soul, and mind. Let's pray. Lord, your calling for us is it's really something. It's far beyond what we would picture for ourselves. You call us to deep connection with you and a deep, meaningful connection with those around us. It would require us that long process of retooling so much of how we think. Would you transform us at the heart level to those who dispense with views of life that break our connections, and don't promote the beauty of deep relationships with you and with one another. I pray that would happen in some sense, steps forward even in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
uh, a couple things. As you, um, as we come to this time of response, it is for us a time of response. Our service is very intentional. We lead into considering what the Bible says to our lives, and then we respond out of it. This is our time of response. As that begins, one of the ways you may want to respond is you have questions. We want dialogue and conversation with you, and you may have questions, thoughts, wonder. You want more information. You want to connect with somebody. Take one of those cards and fill it out if you're new here and drop it in the yellow boxes on the way out or drop it in the offering basket when it comes by. It is a way to take that beginning step forward of connecting beyond the superficial. We also begin this time with our offering. Our offering is a way for us to frame a central concept. God pursues us, and it's out of that that we reach back to him and to the world around us.